You are listening to a message from Thrive Community Church, a church located in Southwest Florida. For more info, visit us at thrive-fl.org. We are in our sixth, I know, sixth week of our series called Neighborhoods to Nations as we look through the book of Acts. And the historical reality that we've been looking at is that the first three centuries, the first 300 years of um, the church saw explosive growth. And the question has been why? And today we're going to learn a little more about that why, what was going on in the people of God in the book of Acts, and what happened. One of the most significant developments we're looking at today in the book of Acts chapter 11. Now, when you read this passage, you might just pass right on by it thinking nothing of it. It seems so matter of fact, whereas it's really not at all. Because in Acts chapter 11, we find ordinary people. Ordinary followers of Jesus, not apostles, not deacons, not people trained or appointed in any form, but just followers of Jesus sharing the gospel with Gentiles, and not just any Gentiles. Like last week when we talked about Cornelius, the Gentile was a God-fearer, somebody who already believed in the scriptures, the Old Testament, and the God of Israel. But this time now, it is Gentiles in Antioch that would be considered polytheists. Okay? They have no concept, no clue as to the God of Israel or the scriptures or anything else. So I think we can learn a lot from this passage. Probably too many things. We're going to focus on just a part of it. So we're in Acts chapter 11, verse 19 to 26. Now those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, speaking the word to no one except Jews. But there were some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who on coming to Antioch spoke to the Hellenists also, preaching the Lord Jesus. And the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number who believed turned to the Lord. The report of this came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. When he came and saw the grace of God, he was glad, and he exhorted them all to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose. For he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith. And a great many people were added to the Lord. So Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul, and when he had found him, he brought him to Antioch. For a whole year they met with the church and taught a great many people. And in Antioch the disciples were first called Christians. Great passage. We're going to look at a lot of things. Um, I like what uh, David Platt, he wrote a book called Radical, um, pretty well known in evangelical circles now as a pastor. He, uh, he said this in a recent uh, message I heard him uh, preach. I want to be part of something in the church that can only be explained by the hand of God. Have you ever felt that way? You know, so often we can kind of come up with marketing. T- we can come up with all sorts of reasons why some things are happening, why not. The book of Acts is filled with things that can only be explained by the hand of God. And I am praying that that happens here in the United States and across this world right now. David Platt, when he was talking, was referring to movements he saw when he went over into India and among the Christians there. And when I went to India back in, I think, 2006 to visit Christians and Christian missions there, I, was kind of a, I felt like I was in the middle of the book of Acts as well. 
And God was doing things there that only we see in the pages of the book of Acts. Church, under severe persecution, under severe trials, and yet the hand of the God was with the people in such way, and many, many people were coming to faith on a regular basis across that nation of polytheists. 1.4 billion people, and Christianity explodes in that place, even now under severe persecution these days. That was going on in the book of Acts here in a city called Antioch. A church was being born under a crucible of persecution because they had all fled out of Jerusalem after Stephen was stoned. And it wasn't that the apostles came. It wasn't that the deacons came. It was that ordinary Christians came into Antioch and started to share the good news of Jesus with people who had never even heard of the God of Israel. There were no programs. There were no marketing campaigns. There were no buildings. There were no budgets. There were no strategic plans, no attractive events, no just ordinary people sharing the joy that they had in Jesus with others, with great compassion, great courage, and an amazing result. I pray it's happening with us too. Now, we could focus on a lot of things in this passage. This church is phenomenal. It becomes a hinge point in this whole letter. It becomes the transition from the neighborhoods to the nations. And it also becomes where we see the first multicultural church come together. You can read about who's all involved, and all of a sudden they have to be called Christians because they can't just be called Jews, and they can't just be called Gentiles, they can't just be called Egyptians, and they can't just be called Africans. They're all together. And... Um, we can also look at how this church was a praying church, a fasting church, and became a missionary movement church because Paul and Barnabas are sent out later. All these things are true, but today we're going to look at one ministry, I think, one person, one ministry that is vital in the midst of what happened and why we got to where we are today in a lot of ways. And it ain't Paul that we're going to focus on. It is Barnabas. Somebody you probably don't even think about too much. Barnabas. This is what it says in Acts 11 again. The report of this came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem, what was going on there, and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. When he came and saw the grace of God, he was glad, and he exhorted them all to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose, for he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith, and a great many people were added to the Lord. Barnabas, his own name, by the way, means son of encouragement. And so we're going to be looking at this ministry of encouragement that he had and specifically how it says in this text of all that he did. You probably don't always realize how important encouragement is. Now, some of you here are teachers, principals, educators, have been in the past. You know encouragement is extremely important. It's what makes the difference in a child's life, really is how encouraging, how celebrating over the uh, discoveries of children and the gifts that they have, how you see the future of these children rather than just the present. All those things are true about encouragement. In fact, there's uh, James Cousins and uh, Barry Posner wrote this book that I use in one of my classes at FGCU. It's called The Leadership Challenge. It talks about five practices of leadership, one of them. He says, one of the most important and the most neglected is to encourage the heart. They have found that that practice is probably more important than many others. And boy, 
Do you feel like after this year, with everything going, instead of criticism, instead of diagnostics, instead of um, <laughs> information, instead of any, do you need encouragement like I do? I think you probably do. This has been a tough year, especially because we've been so isolated. It's vital for the church. It was vital for Antioch. They sent Barnabas, the son of encouragement there, and then what he did. So we're going to his ministry today, we're going to find out these things. I know it's a lot, but I think we're going to cover it decently in still the same amount of time I usually preach, okay? What encouragement is, how encouragement is lived, the source of that encouragement, and then your call to encourage. I pray that we become, I think we have been actually, ever since our inception, this church has been very encouraging to me. Um, and encouragement doesn't mean just affirming. Encouragement doesn't just mean, you know, uh, we're not look, I'm not looking for sycophants who just kind of come up and schmooze me. No, 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 no. Encouragement is much deeper than that. We're going to find that out from Barnabas himself, okay? But this church is an encouraging church, and I pray to God that we actually expand on that because I think that will make the difference, as it did in Antioch. So what is encouragement? Now, we can look at the word in English itself and probably find a lot to it. It's actually from the 15th century French word, Old French, encourage. How do you say this in French? Anybody know? I don't know French. Who, 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 who would? Encourager. Encourager. Okay. Thank you. I don't, I don't either. Does anybody speak French? We? Okay. Well, we can get Google like to tell us what it's supposed to be. Is that what you encourage year? Oh, come on. Okay, we got the word. But you can find N, which is to kind of make or to put into, and courage, which actually is a word for heart. Okay? And so it's like to give people heart, especially those who are disheartened. Have you ever felt that way? Yeah, yeah. Now, the word here, though, that I think in our translation is exhort in ESV. A number of other translations use encourage. Um, it's actually an amazing Greek word that has a wide lexical range. Have you heard that word lexic? It basically means you can have many definitions to it because it's really hard to, there's so much into it. It's the word parakaleo. And you're going like, para, that's to come alongside, to be parallel with, kaleo, to call out. It's actually where we get the word call, but it is call forth or to call out. And so I, I think of teachers often like this. They come alongside the children in their classroom. They come alongside of them. They get down right at their level. If you're in preschool, you're on the floor a lot. And you come alongside. You play with them. You get to know them personally. You know them by name. You, and you then call out from them what they don't even know they can be themselves. Isn't that great? Parakaleo, that is what Barnabas did. Actually, it's the whole, there is some tension in the word, actually. 
There is some tension because to call out is also sometimes to call forth things the child doesn't realize, but also to call them out if they're out of line with what they should be or could be doing. Does that make sense to you? You parakaleo, you both exhort, you encourage, but you also kind of, hey, direct. And so there is that. It's a firm word. And it's a tender word at the same time. It's a ministry that is so absolutely important. I think it's when the New Testament talks about speaking the truth in love, both together at the same time. Why is that so important? Because I, we, are insecure. Okay? Now, you go like, wait a minute. John, you come across as, yeah, no, I'm insecure. We all are really insecure. I know so many people. Yes, in our society right now, you can't show your insecurities. You can't show your vulnerabilities. You have to have kind of a pretty thick armor on these days. We've become such self-promoters and self-defenders, and we even go on the offense in order to do it. We counterpunch. But all that says is that we are in a very insecure society. Very Oh, people are so opinionated, and yet at the same time so absolutely insecure on the inside. On the outside, a fortress. On the inside, a house of cards. Okay? And so what happens is if somebody comes to me with truth, and they tell me like it is, what's my reaction? Defensive mechanisms right away. You know, I might, uh, I might blame shift, you know, say, <laughs> but you know, so-and-so, you know, you know how that goes, right? Or I might uh, excuse, my, well, you know, I'm just happy, it was just a hard, come up with reasons why to make it seem a little softer. Or I might find something, uh, somebody who's doing, well, but they are doing some, you know, I can find all sorts of reasons, or I can blame shift to somebody else, or I can actually counterpunch and say, uh, you know, the kettle, the pot, you know, who's calling, you know, all that stuff. You know all this, how this works, right? You come to somebody with the truth, and they immediately attack the person who brings it. And that is the way that we are. We are, that is part of our fallen condition. Because we are insecure. We don't have something to stand on. But when somebody comes to you, whom you trust who you know loves you, who has advocated for you, who has defended you, who has been there for you, who has served you, who is by your side, who understands you, who sympathizes with you, and then speaks and calls forth and calls out truth at the same time. You have a chance of listening and growing. So much right now in our society, in our culture, maybe it's across the world, maybe it's always been like this. I just, we've just noticed it with social media and just media in general and the splintering and the fracturing of all sorts of things, is that nobody's really learning anything. Because we're always focused on defending ourselves. Children learn through encouragement. Children learn because they're willing to take truth in, and it doesn't, like, destroy them. Because they know, often, their teachers actually love them. And we see this again and again. When 
A person around comes alongside and does that makes the world of difference. That is parakaleo. That is what Barnabas did in Antioch. And how absolutely important it was. So here we're going to go through now how encouragement is lived out and how actually Barnabas did it, our point two. So we see in Acts 11.23, it says, when he came and saw the grace of God. Isn't that interesting? He came and what did he see? What he actually saw was a bunch of Gentiles and Jews and people from all sorts of different backgrounds all together. But he also saw these polytheists that had no history. There was no circumcision among them. There were no kosher food laws going on. They were dressed whatever way they wanted. They were, they were doing all sorts of crazy things possibly. And yet they were talking about Jesus. What he saw was not what other people could have come in and seen. Do you understand what I mean by that? It's so easy to judge people from the outside appearance. It's so easy to be judgmental in so many ways, to have all the, Barnabas himself had all the categories growing up. Jew and Gentile, right? Kosher, not kosher. Law abiding and law breaking. And when he comes in, he can see all the people who would have been, he could have easily discerned not the grace of God, but licentiousness. Oh, oh my goodness, I can't believe these people are not worthy to be speaking the name. You know, you can almost hear how some people do that today about others. Well, we don't have to think. We can look at the life of Jesus himself. When he was around, and all of a sudden all these tax gatherers and sinners, as it's put, right, are celebrating with Jesus, the Pharisees grumbled, mumbled, and said he's eating with them. How dare he? All they could see is lawbreakers and terrible things going on. They did not see the grace of God coming into the lives. What's fascinating is the word grace here is charis, where we get the word charity. And what Barnabas really has is eyes to see, charitable eyes to see, the grace of God, the love of God at work in the lives, the favor of God on what was happening. He wasn't going like, oh my goodness, there's no apostle here. There's no, there's no who, who by what authority did they decide to go out and share the gospel with these people? This is chaos. This is a mess. This is, he encouraged, he saw the hand of God on it. I have seen too many times within Christianity, and you can see it in history as well over the last 2,000 years, that people have questioned, well, wait a minute, that person, who, who gave them the authority? To, do you understand what I mean by that? But some of the greatest movements of God have happened when people just break out and start doing things without getting, quote, permission. <laughs> some of the great revivals have happened that way. You know, we need to be a permission-granting church in that sense. We don't need to go like, well, wait a minute. You don't have the authority to start that ministry. Who told you that you were supposed We have so squelched the Holy Spirit at times because of the protocols that we have to follow. The rules. Barnabas could see beyond it. You cannot be an encourager if you're going to be a Pharisee. You just can't. 
And what I mean by Pharisee is that you think somehow if everything is just done in decency and in order and according to certain laws, God is much more favorable to you if you do it that way. And God does not like you if you, do you understand? Barnabas understood that the, law, that the grace of God is such that it comes to people who are lawbreakers and law keepers who are moral and immoral, and the grace of God changes all people regardless, and no one is more favored as a result of any performance that they do. God does not love you any more or any less. He absolutely loves you, and Barnabas could see that in the grace of God. Now, we all struggle with it. <clears throat> I've probably heard myself say things, if I'd look back at my life, of how easily judgmental I am of others, Hey, why, how could they dress like that? Why, why do they have a tattoo there? Why do they, um, why do they like that kind of music? How could that music ever be God-pleasing? Do you understand? Watch it. I'm telling you, we all have to watch that. That's not being Barnabas. To see the grace of God, you've got to receive the grace of God. The more you understand God's grace in your own life for someone who has broken the rules, messed up, totally, the more you'll be able to celebrate God's grace in other people's lives. And Barnabas didn't just notice that the grace of God's hand was on it. Then he celebrated it. It says, when he came and saw the grace of God, he was glad. He rejoiced. He celebrated. He didn't go like, wait a minute, we didn't get credit for it back in Jerusalem. He didn't care who got credit for it. He didn't care who was doing it. He, it didn't have to happen within his. If we see the grace of God happening in our society, wherever it is around the world, in another nation, in another language, in another people group, by another hand, but in another way, celebrate it. Praise God for it breaking out there. Don't worry Who's getting credit or who did it or who didn't do it or what, what's going on? You know, if other churches are growing, celebrate it. If people are coming to faith in Jesus Christ, wherever it is, rejoice in it. So Barnabas then, what does he do? He celebrates it. He sees it. He celebrates it. And then it says he parakaleoed them. And what did he parakaleo them doing? He parakaleoed them to and encouraged them to stay and remain faithful to the Lord. Notice he didn't say, oh, great, this is wonderful. You Gentiles, now what you have to do. There are 613 commandments that we follow. You got to get circumcised, and you better start, stop eating that stuff, start eating this stuff, start, to, don't do that on this day, and do this, and you better dress like this, and you better be like this. You got to become part of our culture. He didn't do any of that stuff, which I know you might say, that is revolutionary. That is revolutionary. That he understood that his culture and his viewpoint was not the only way God's grace was going to get to this world. The grace of God is seen in how it is translated into all sorts of different cultures and that the love of God is manifest. He did not force them into the law. He pointed them again and again to Jesus Christ himself. And then, 
one step further. He saw after a long time of God's favor upon them, he realized this work is too big for me. And there's more that needs to be done. They need more instruction. They need more teaching. And it says in Acts 11, 25 to 26, so Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul. And when he had found him, he brought him to Antioch. For a whole year, they met with the church and taught a great many people. Now, Saul. This is probably one of the most fateful and wonderful decisions that happens in the book of Acts. And it's just something that naturally came to Barnabas because of who he was and what God had done in his life. But I don't know if anybody else would have done it. When Barnabas saw that, he could have easily gone, I'm going to go back to Jerusalem and bring, you know, John or Peter or James or one of the apostles. No, he decides to think out of the box in a sense. Now, I don't know if you realize this. The history of Saul, Paul, gets... There's a vague period of time of we don't know too much about, and that, and yet we, we do know a few parameters. Back in Acts chapter 6 is the first time we notice who this guy is. And he happened to be standing next to everybody and saying, hey, I'll take your coats as you stone Stephen. <laughs> he is approving of them killing off one of uh, Jesus' followers. That's the first thing we notice. Then the next thing we notice is in Acts 9, he has gotten authority to go out and persecute the church. And not just in Jerusalem, he is going as far as Damascus to start tracking them down and jailing them. And that's when God meets him on the road. When Barnabas is going after him, here in Acts 11, 10 years have passed. Ten years. Now, in between, we know a little more about Paul from a few other places and from Barnabas and what happened. Is Paul then, immediately upon his conversion and uh, having been blind and then now being able to see, and nobody really trusted him, but he started to preach the gospel in Damascus. And then he got persecuted and had to flee for his life, be dropped by a basket outside of the city. He stays out in the desert for a short period of time, comes back to the city of Damascus to try to preach again and is rejected. And then he finally travels to Jerusalem where he wants to meet with the apostles because he wants to confirm with them. And they refuse because this is the dude. Wait a minute. We don't trust him. And Barnabas is the one who makes the connection and brings him in and encourages and connects him to Peter. But 10 years have passed since that point in time. Paul has gone back to Tarsus. We have no idea what's been really going on in his ministry, but nothing of note. 10 years. Here he's had this dramatic conversion. Here he's had all of these things happen. Here he's shown his zeal, and then nothing for 10 years. Can you imagine? Silent 10 years, on hold, nothing going on. I can see Paul getting depressed. I can see him losing hope. I can see him thinking, well, yeah, you know, I was the worst. <laughs> I, I proved killing. Why would God ever want to use me? I'm just fooling myself. But Barnabas sees something that Paul can do that only Paul can do. Barnabas sees God's future 
not the past of Paul. An encourager will not see your past, but your future. And so Barnabas came and brought Paul. So what we learn in all of this is a whole list of what encouragement really looks like and how it works. Encouragement sees God's grace and circumstances. It comes alongside of people. It rejoices in the gospel in people's lives. It frees people from unnecessary rules. It sees in others what they cannot see in themselves, and it meets the need for methodical growth for that year that Paul and Barnabas were with them. Man, you can go long-term through all of this, can't you? And do you see how God has flipped the script and only the hand of God could have brought this about? So in Acts 6, Paul's the persecutor. Paul's the one who approves Stephen getting stoned. Unbeknownst to himself, Paul is the one, in one sense, who started the church in Antioch (laughs) by his unbelief and rebellion because it's only through that persecution did these Christians get scattered And it's these Christians who were scattered by the persecution Paul had started with others in Jerusalem that had brought about the church that would then call him to come alongside and then send him out for the rest of the book of Acts. Talk about reconciliation and forgiveness. Talk about a church that saw the future and didn't hold on to the past of Paul or anyone. Isn't that amazing? When Christian churches uh, bring in people, welcome people who have a whole host of things that they've, quote, done in the past, it's amazing how we can say, wow, but you know what? God has a future for you. God has a future for you. We need Barnabas. You probably had one or two in your life, here and there, who saw in you things that you didn't see in yourself, who didn't just focus on all of the problems that you've had, who didn't just speak truth to you, but who loved you, who came alongside of you, who walked alongside of you, who encouraged you, who exhorted you, who sometimes maybe it's called you on the carpet. Now, how in the world did Barnabas become like this, right? I mean, how? What was his source of encouragement? That's our point three. And this is what it says in Acts 11.24a. He was a good man. Full of, can we say it together? Full of the Holy Spirit. Now, I don't know if you realize this. One of the names given the Holy Spirit in the Gospel of John is paraclete, from the word parakaleo, that Greek word. It occurs three or four times where Jesus says, for instance, in John 14, 26, but the helper, that's the word, but the paraclete, the Holy Spirit whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. It's the Holy Spirit. Sometimes he's called the comforter. Sometimes he's called the advocate. Sometimes he's called the helper. Sometimes he could be called the exhorter or the encourager. And what does he do? He points people to Jesus. He celebrates Jesus. He presents Jesus. He brings Jesus. He lifts up Jesus. He parakaleos you. He comes alongside of your life so much so that he is within you. He never leaves you. And he calls forth what only he can bring, only what Jesus has done for you. He reminds you of that. Now, you not only have one paraclete in your life, 
You have two. For in 1 John chapter 2, verse 1, it says this, My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate, a paraclete, with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. Where Barnabas got his source for being such an encourager was not that he was a positive thinker. He wasn't just a natural optimist. He didn't think of the best in human nature because we know what human nature is like. We see it every day. He looked to Jesus who was his paraclete, his advocate, the one who came alongside of us. And when I mean came alongside of us, according to the New Testament, Jesus, did Jesus, did God have to? No, God could have just said, hey, this is what you're supposed to do. Come on, do it. He could have coached from the sidelines, in a sense, or yelled from the heavens, or, you know, he could have done all sorts of things to try to get the people to do the things that you should do, just like a lot of bosses do, just like a lot of people do, a lot of leaders do. They tell you what to do from a distance. No, 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 no. Jesus Christ did not just come alongside of us. He became one with us. Isn't that amazing? The word becomes flesh. So does he understand you? Because he's bone of your bone and flesh of your flesh. He's closer to you than you are to yourself. He knows you better than you know you. He comes alongside of you, and then he calls forth. As he called Jairus, wake up, little girl. As he called Lazarus forth from the graves. As he called Peter and said, come follow me. He calls forth us to new life. Now, as Jesus speaks the truth in love, to this messy, rebellious world, we know what happens. We reject his message, and we nail him to a cross, and there we see God's truth and love come together in such a profound way, it just defies all understanding. And the fact is that Jesus shares with us at the cross just what our sinfulness and rebellion does. It kills. And he shares at the cross what God's love and grace does. It takes our place. He gives up his life for us to be the one who comes alongside of us and to call out what only he can do. That ministry right there. Because the gospel permeated Barnabas' life, when he came to Antioch, he could see what grace was doing among Hellenists, polytheists, He could see God's hand in things that others probably would have rejected. He was excited and celebrated and rejoiced. He gave up himself to it. He came alongside and then exhorted them not to a bunch of rules, but to Jesus and to be faithful to him and to follow him. You know, I think um, that can happen for all of us. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, I think, talks about this in his book, Life Together. He puts it this way. If Christians seriously deal on a daily basis with the cross of Christ, they will lose the spirit of human judgmentalism as well as weak indulgence. So in other words, they won't just, oh, well, whatever, and they won't all say, oh, I can't believe you. Instead, they receive instead the spirit of divine firmness and divine love, parakaleo. Love coming alongside of firmness calling out. 
So they love the other believers with a merciful love of God that leads through the death of the sinner to the life of the child of God. That's how and why Barnabas could be an encourager. Leadership, by the way, is not about position. Barnabas becomes, in a sense, the sidekick, you know, the tanto to the Lone Ranger, to, uh, to Paul. We think of Paul and go like, wow, that's great. So often we think of people like Billy Graham, that's great. How about the person who discipled Billy Graham? How about the person who encouraged Billy Graham? Do you understand? Barnabas may have been more important to the early church than Paul because of his ministry and how he connected it all together. So leadership is not about position or place. It's about your attitude. It's about the sense of responsibility that you can make a difference by being encouragers here. And so I am calling you, calling us all to be encouragers. Because the reality is this. And Bonhoeffer writes about this again. He says, you cannot hide from God. The mask you wear in the presence of others, people won't get you anywhere in the presence of God. God wants to see you as you are, wants to be gracious to you. You do not have to go on lying to yourself and to other Christians as if you are without sin. You are allowed to be a sinner. Thank God for that. In other words, Barnabas was a sinner, and he knew it. That doesn't stop him. It actually gives him the platform to be an encourager to others. You can be real. Hey, you got a sinner in front of you and a bunch of sinners watching online and a bunch of sinners here in the congregation this morning in person. That is a reality, and yet we're not encouraging ourselves to sin. We're not lying in it and saying, oh, that's great, or hiding it. We're being who we are, and therefore we can encourage out of the grace that we have received, we need to receive God's grace first. That's how what your call to encourage starts with you receiving God's grace first. And then I think it comes into getting close to others. Kuzas and Posner in their book are right. They say encouragement requires us to get close to people so that we care about them and demonstrate that we are interested in others. Now, I know this last year has been tough that way. We've been at a distance, and that's why I think as well, have you noticed the levels of anxiety and depression and sadness and frustration and discouragement this world has seen? We need to now, at this point in time, come alongside of each other. You got to get close to people. The question here at Thrive is going to be moving forward is who are you allowing in? Who's getting close to you and who are you open to to get close to? Do you understand what I mean by that? It takes time. You can't do it from a distance. You can't say, oh, that's wonderful. You've got to be in people's lives. And the rest really will follow. The rest really does follow. The whole list that Barnabas did becomes what we do here, and I pray that we will, that we see God's grace and circumstances, that we come alongside of other people, we rejoice in the gospel in their lives, we free people from all the unnecessary rules, we see in others what they cannot see in themselves, and we meet their need for methodical growth discipleship. That's encouragement. That's how it works. That's who our source is, and that's our calling. Let's pray. Lord God, thank you for Barnabas and the ministry that he had that made such a difference, a pivotal moment in this book of Acts. 
how it went from neighborhoods now to nations, and how he saw the grace of God. Help us, Lord, this week to have our eyes open to see the grace of God in people's lives, to see in them what they cannot see in themselves, to be the type of encourager who comes alongside of others, but also calls forth the best, the greatest, the calling that God has on their life, Lord, who points them to you. Lord, right now, we pray a prayer of encouragement, especially for Chris Rodriguez back in the hospital. I know it's been a tough year health-wise for her. We ask, O oh Lord, that you bring to her your spirit in a profound way and to be with Jamie, too, who is also discouraged again and again with this chronic conditions that they've been facing, Lord. We pray for the doctors that they are encouraged, that you would inspire them to find uh, what's going on, and we pray, Lord, that we'd come alongside, that we don't just from a distance hope or wish, but come alongside Jamie and Chris and the family. Use us personally, Lord, in their lives. We lift up to you others in our congregation too, Lord. We celebrate with them, for instance, like with uh, <clears throat> James and Zoe at Will's uh, first birthday this week. We praise you, Lord, for the gift and encourage, Lord, the growth. We pray, Lord God, that you would be with us here at Thrive as our council meets today to give us wisdom, Lord, over how we move forward with the changes now on a national scale uh, in our COVID response that we, Lord, know what next to do, that we, Lord, become a church that comes alongside of people as well, that it lifts them up and encourages them. Lord, we lift up to you Lofan and the ministry of Mission Haiti. We pray that he would be encouraged this day and that you would uh, inspire the board in uh, the future. Lord, with Helen's passing and Lloyd's passing, we just pray, Lord, that you would direct that ministry as well, that, only, that we can only explain what you're doing in Haiti by the hand of God, that we can only explain what you're doing in Thrive, that your hand was upon us, Lord that it wasn't our abilities or our thoughts or any of that stuff, but it was you and your uh, Holy Spirit that was working through us. Lord, we pray that that's what's going on here. Lord, we also are um, exhorted by the words that Bonhoeffer shared. <laughs> we come before you as sinners, Lord. We are not going to hide that from you. We, you know our hearts and how, how twisted they have been again and again. Lord, we need your forgiveness. Forgive us. Renew us and lead us. And prepare us, Lord, to receive this gift that you give yourself in your supper this day. We pray, Lord, that you would encourage us to be giving people at Thrive as we serve this community through many ways, and that we would be giving people out of the bounty that you've given to us. So we pray, Lord, your blessing over our offering, both that online and that in person that will occur in just a few moments. We pray, Lord God, that you would work through that. And Lord, as we close our online streaming at this point in time, we pray your blessing and encouragement on all those who have watched that have participated. We encourage, we ask, Lord, that you plug them in and have them come alongside of us or alongside of others, Lord, to be in that Christian fellowship again and not so isolated anymore, Lord, that you draw us together again. 
All this we lift up to you in your precious name, dear Jesus. Amen.